0: Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 82, The Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. The winter of 1775-76 was a tough one for the British in Boston. After General Thomas Gage returned to England, leaving General William Howe in charge, the army did almost nothing. Like Gage, Howe thought that they needed to abandon the city. The army needed to move to a position somewhere else that would give them more room to maneuver. While they decided exactly what to do, the army sat and rotted away. Although reinforcements from Britain continued to arrive over the winter, Hundreds of regulars died from smallpox, typhus, and other diseases. A lack of fresh food also led to the spread of scurvy, which only made the soldiers more susceptible to die from other diseases. Aside from disease, almost everyone was desperate for food and firewood. The third in command, General John Burgoyne, had gotten frustrated and returned to London, where he could better criticize Howe's Command to the folks in London. Second in command, General Henry Clinton remained in Boston, but also was clearly fed up with Howe's leadership. He did not want to sit in Boston for the rest of the winter watching the army starve and die. In January, General Howe agreed to let Clinton take command of a contingent of soldiers in the southern colonies. They thought that there they could still find a large contingent of Loyalists who could be rallied to serve the king. Governor Josiah Martin in North Carolina had been telling everyone that he could raise 10,000 loyalist soldiers to fight for the king if only the army would send someone for them to rally around. The royal governors in Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia all said pretty much the same thing. Of course, all of these royal governors were stuck on navy ships offshore because the patriots had forced them out of the colony but that did not dissuade them from the idea that the Loyalists were just lying low, waiting for an opportunity to take up the fight. General Clinton took only a couple of companies of light infantry when he sailed from Boston. General Howe in Boston was happy to be rid of Clinton. He did not, however, want to let any of his regiments leave Boston, despite the fact that they were just sitting around dying of hunger and disease. Howe still feared that the Continentals might attempt to take the city. He needed to have sufficient forces to defend against such an attack. Clinton's plan was to meet up with seven regiments of Irish infantry, as well as an artillery unit which London had deployed as reinforcements in America. Leading this new force was a newly promoted major general named Charles Cornwallis. He's going to play a big role in future events but for now, he was bringing a contingent of reinforcements and would serve as second-in-command to the more senior Major General Clinton in this expedition to the southern colonies. Clinton left Boston on January 20, 1776, but only sailed as far as New York City. There, he met with Governor Martin of North Carolina and Governor Campbell of South Carolina in order to assess the chances in those colonies. He also met with New York Governor Tryon, who had been governor of North Carolina a few years prior. The plan was to use Cornwallis' regular regiments to rally the Loyalists in the southern colonies. They would restore power to the local governments, then the regulars could rejoin General Howe in the summer to recapture the northern colonies. Ahead of Clinton's arrival in North Carolina, the British sent recruiters, to enlist the Loyalists who would fight with the small force of regulars due to arrive soon. As they did in Canada, the British in North Carolina hoped to recruit among the many Scottish Highlanders who had settled in the colony. These Highlanders had shown fierce loyalty to the king and had a well-respected reputation as warriors. To recruit this new force, Clinton sent two officers into North Carolina to recruit men. Lieutenant Colonel Donald MacDonald, who had a long battle record from Culloden in 1745 to Bunker Hill the prior year, and Captain Donald MacLeod, also a veteran of Bunker Hill. Both men were Scots who spoke fluent Gaelic, like the Scottish settlers in western North Carolina. MacDonald had a cousin who was a leader in the Highlander community of North Carolina. Both men received brevet promotion. MacDonald to General and McLeod to Lieutenant Colonel, to raise and command a Loyalist army in the southern colonies. Almost as soon as they arrived in North Carolina, Patriot forces took the two men into custody. However, they convinced their captors that they were simply retired officers looking to settle with friends and family in the colony. Apparently convinced, the Patriots allowed them to proceed into the Highlander communities further inland. The British officers worked with a local Loyalist named Alexander McLean, who had military authority from Royal Governor Martin to commission officers to lead the new militia. They moved to the area around Cross Creek, which is near modern-day Fayetteville, and began recruiting. The officers had more to offer than simple appeals to loyalty. They offered 200 acres of land to volunteers, as well as 20 years of tax exemption. They spread the word that all loyal men willing to fight for the king should meet at Cross Creek on February 5th. At the meeting, loyalists could not agree what to do. Several hundred were there ready to form up immediately. Others were more cautious. They did not want to make themselves targets for the patriots until there were British regulars there to support them. No one expected any regulars to arrive until at least early March. By some accounts, MacDonald recruited as many as 3,500 men by mid-February. It seems, however, that many of the men did not stick around after they found out there were no British regulars, only the two recruiting officers, and that they would have to fight their way to the coast, doing battle with their fellow colonists, before they could join the regulars, who might or might not be there by the time they reached the coast. Remember. Many of these men had been defeated and scattered by the Patriot forces only a few months earlier in the snow campaign that I discussed back in Episode 77. In the end, well under 2,000 Loyalists stuck around and agreed to march to the coast under General MacDonald. The Loyalist army set off to march to the coast at Cape Fear. There, they would meet up with the regulars arriving by ship and crush the Patriot forces in the colony. That was the plan, anyway. The problem was that none of this remained a secret. Patriot leaders in North Carolina received word of General Clinton sailing for the colony, and also of the recruitment of Scottish colonists around Cross Creek. The North Carolina Provincial Congress called on its Continental Regiment and supporting militia to confront this new Loyalist militia, they wanted to disrupt the recruiting before the force became too large. They also wanted to prevent them from reaching the coast and joining up with the fleet of regulars that they expected would soon arrive. The Continental Congress had just commissioned James Moore as colonel of the newly raised 1st North Carolina Regiment. Moore was an experienced officer who had seen action in the French and Indian War and the Cherokee Wars. He served as a colonel in the militia under Royal Governor Tryon and had helped put down the North Carolina regulators at the Battle of Alamance a few years earlier. But Moore was also a dedicated patriot. He had led the mobs during the Stamp Act riots, he was a long-standing member of the Sons of Liberty, and had helped raise support for the people of Boston after Parliament closed their port in 1774. He had served in the Colonial Legislature, but had also helped organize the North Carolina Provincial Congress when the royal governor had shut down the Colonial House of Representatives. He was now a member of the Committee of Safety and helped to organize the new Continental Regiment that he now commanded. By mid-February, Moore had taken his 650-man regiment into the region and looked for an opportunity to attack. Moore called on two militia regiments, one led by Colonel Richard Caswell and another led by Alexander Lillington, to cooperate in an attack on the Loyalist Brigade. Caswell was primarily a politician, then serving as president of the Provincial Congress, and would go on to become the state's first governor. But he was also a longtime militia officer. He had fought alongside Moore at the Battle of Alamance. Lillington was also a long-time militia officer and colonial politician, having served along with the other two colonels when they crushed the regulators at Alamance. He had also been a leader in the Stamp Act riots, served in the Provincial Congress, and with Moore on the Committee of Safety. In short, all three colonels were dedicated patriots with military experience and knew each other well. Colonel Moore had established his regiment within a few miles of the Loyalist camp, at Cross Creek. He set up a defensive line along Rockfish Creek and awaited the attack. When British General MacDonald learned of the Patriot Force, he sent a messenger under a flag of truce calling on them to lay down their arms or, quote, suffer the fate of an enemy of the Crown, end quote. Moore was not impressed by this bluster and sent back a message of his own that the Loyalists needed to take an oath to support the Continental Congress or, quote, be treated as enemies of the constitutional liberties of America, end quote. Clearly, neither side was backing down. General MacDonald, however, had no intention of sending his inexperienced loyalist militia against an entrenched enemy. They had almost no time to drill, and many of them did not even have muskets. MacDonald's plan had been to march his men to Cape Fear before engaging the rebels so he marched his men down back roads toward the coast, hoping to avoid a confrontation with the Patriots. This route required MacDonald's troops to cross Moores Creek. There, Lillington, with about 150 Patriot militia, had dug in on the far side of the bridge, preparing to block the Loyalists. After it became clear that MacDonald's Loyalists were headed for the bridge, Caswell brought another 850 or so patriot militia to the bridge to assist with its defense. Caswell also had a small cannon and an even smaller swivel gun to supplement his infantry. Even so, the 1,600 loyalist forces outnumbered the combined 1,000 patriots defending the bridge. Before the rest of the patriots in Moore’s regiment could catch up with them, MacDonald hoped he might be able to capture the militia, then wait for Moore's forces to arrive and allow his Loyalists to sit in their entrenchments and fend off the Patriot attack. On February 26, the Loyalists marched within a few miles of Moore's Creek Bridge. General MacDonald became deeply ill and had to turn over his command to Colonel MacLeod. As they did when they confronted Colonel Moore's Patriots, the Loyalists sent out a party under a flag of truce to demand the surrender of the Patriot militia offering full pardon if they surrendered and declared loyalty to the king. Caswell told them thanks but no thanks and told the young loyalist officer to return to his lines. The officer did return, but not before the patriots had allowed him to get a good look at their defenses. The officer reported back to MacLeod that Caswell's patriot lines had set their defenses on the near side of the creek. This meant that they could not use the creek as a natural defense and could not quickly retreat if attacked. With this bad position and with the Loyalists outnumbering the Patriots, McLeod decided to engage the enemy. Meanwhile, at the Patriot lines, Caswell had also apparently decided that his deployment on the near side of the creek was, in fact, a really stupid way to deploy his lines. That evening, he moved his entire force over the bridge to the far side. They also took up the planks of the bridge so that no attacking force could rush across it. While the soldiers moved over to the far bank, they left their tents up and kept campfires burning on the near bank to confuse the attacking Loyalists. MacLeod marched his Loyalists toward the Patriot militia that night, planning to attack the camp around daybreak on February 27th. When they arrived, the Loyalist advance force was not sure what was going on. They saw the empty Patriot camp on the near side and the defensive lines on the other side of the creek. Now, since both sides were militia without flags or uniforms, they were not entirely sure who they were facing. A Patriot called out and asked if they were a friend. The Loyalist replied that they were friends to the king and both sides quickly realized that they were facing the enemy across the creek. Now, General MacDonald, who was lying in a sickbed miles away, had been trying to avoid any confrontation with the enemy. Although his force was larger, they were raw, untrained militia. About half of them did not even have guns, many only had swords. They expected to get the guns when they met up with the regulars. Later, MacDonald said he would never have engaged in the battle, but that's easy to say in hindsight. But whatever the case, Lieutenant Colonel MacLeod opted to charge. His forces tried to cross over the bridge in the face of enemy fire. With the planks removed, they had to climb over the framing, allowing the Patriots to shoot dozens of them as they slowly made their way over the bridge frame. Colonel MacLeod bravely led the charge and made it over the bridge with a few men, but not enough made it. The Patriots killed at least 30 Loyalists, including Macleod. The remaining Loyalists decided that slowly climbing over a bridge in the face of enemy fire was not for them, and they fled. Caswell then had the Patriot militia put back the bridge flanks and crossed over the creek to pursue the fleeing enemy. The Patriots captured about half the attacking force with the other half scattering and presumably making their way home. Caswell's Patriot militia also captured the main camp with all of its supplies, including guns, ammunition, and a large amount of gold that the British had been using to recruit volunteers. The Patriots also took the ailing General MacDonald prisoner. Only two Patriots had been wounded in the battle, one of them dying a few days later. The entire battle had lasted only a few minutes, although they spent most of the rest of the day tracking down Loyalists who had fled the battle and were hiding all over the area. Colonel Moore arrived later that day, frustrated that he had missed the battle, but took command of the aftermath. The victorious Colonel Moore agreed to allow most of the Loyalist soldiers to return home after taking an oath not to take up arms against the Patriot cause. Those who refused the oath, had to put up a bond and agree to leave the colony within 60 days. Even those who escaped capture were subject to these conditions. The Patriots had captured General MacDonald's muster rolls and knew the name of every man who had volunteered for the Loyalists. The officers became prisoners of war. They sent British General MacDonald north, where he would be exchanged a few months later for a Continental General who was captured during the Battle of Long Island. Colonel Moore did not fight in the battle, but received credit for the winning strategy anyway. The Continental Congress promoted him to Brigadier General. A couple of weeks after the battle, British General Clinton finally arrived at Cape Fear on March 12th, along with Governors Martin and Campbell from North and South Carolina. They heard about the Loyalist defeat at Moore's Creek Bridge, but had little to do until General Cornwallis's fleet arrived from Ireland. The fleet would not begin to arrive until the end of April due to bad weather, and Cornwallis himself would not arrive until the beginning of May. So Clinton had to spend about six weeks sitting off the coast, occasionally sending landing parties to shore to collect food for his troops. Colonel Moore brought his Continentals from the 1st and 2nd North Carolina regiments to the coast, attacking Clinton's raiding parties and firing cannon at the ships if they got too close to shore. Similarly, Clinton's ships would fire at any patriots that came to the shoreline. Not much came of these raids. On April 6th, a British raiding party caught a Continental officer and five soldiers off guard at Brunswick Town, North Carolina. They took the men prisoners and brought them back to the British fleet. Once Cornwallis arrived in May, the generals decided on a new course of action. Both forces were tired and hungry from months aboard ship. Clinton issued a general pardon for any rebels who would affirm their allegiance to the king. But, like Gage's offer in Boston, even those who might have been inclined to remain loyal feared the wrath of the patriots that controlled the colony far more than the regulars who didn't even seem to get a toll hold on land. On May 12th, Cornwallis raided the coastal plantation of Colonel Robert Howe, burning his home and stealing about 20 cattle. They hit a few other coastal raids, including a return to Brunswick Town, where they burned most of the town. But without the promised thousands of Tory militia to support them, Clinton and Cornwallis could not hope to establish British control of the colony. Knowing that they would soon have to return to Howe in a few months, they gave up on retaking North Carolina that year and moved on to South Carolina. That will be the subject of a future episode. So the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge is sometimes called the Lexington of the South. I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but the battle did have some importance. Although patriots had already taken control of the southern colonies, the battle did prevent any sort of a Loyalist counter-uprising that many strategists in London were relying on to turn the tide of the war. Coming in February 1776, the patriots got a big morale boost following the failure to take Quebec in January and with the continuing standoff in Boston. For North Carolinians, it sealed their fidelity to the Patriot cause. Less than two months later, North Carolina became the first colony to instruct its delegates in the Continental Congress to vote for independence. In London, the loss was seen as a disappointment, but given that it was only Loyalist militia, not regulars involved, it was not seen as that big of a deal. Strategists saw it as a setback, but still hoped to rally the Loyalists to the cause under new leadership at some future date. However, the battle also indicated to the British leadership that retaking the South would not be easy. The British would not make another serious attempt to retake the Carolinas for another four years. Next week, the Continental Congress rejects British peace feelers, and instead reaches out to France for assistance. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get started, I have a confession to make. On my blog, I have a section at the end called Books worth buying. That's where I list books that are still under copyright and not available as free ebooks. My confession is that I don't buy all the books on that list. Most of them I get from my library. For some strange reason, my family insists on spending money on food, clothing, and shelter rather than letting me build the world's largest private book collection dedicated to the American Revolution. My point is, even if you don't have money, these books are available to you, probably at no cost. If my library does not have a book, I can still get a copy through their interlibrary loan program. You may want to see if your library has something similar. I have found that most do, but they don't advertise it very loudly. My library also subscribes to a service called Hoopla. Through that service, I can download many books to my tablet for free, and that's actually how I got a copy of this week's book recommendation. You may want to check if your library has Hoopla or some similar online book service so that you don't go broke sending all your money to Jeff Bezos. All I'm saying is if you already pay for your library services through taxes, you might as well use them. So today we found ourselves in North Carolina for another consequential battle. Moores Creek Bridge is not one of those battles you read much about, but imagine if two or 3,000 Loyalist militia had linked up with Generals Clinton and Cornwallis and re-established royal authority in the Carolinas in 1776. British control of the South that early in the war probably would have encouraged most locals to support the crown much like what happened in Canada. Fortunately for the Patriots, the British did not want to expend a great deal of time there. They wanted to focus on New England and New York. If they could expend a little effort and maintain authority in the South, great, but if not, they figured these colonies could wait until the regulars stamped out the rebellion in the heart of New England. Of course, that was a big mistake the Patriots were playing a full-court press. Wherever Regulars or Loyalists tried to organize, local Patriots or Continental regiments were ready to squash them. There probably was a much larger population of Loyalists in the Carolinas. But the Patriots did such a good job of keeping them disorganized and muted that by the time the British made a serious effort to reclaim the colonies in 1778 or 79 it was much more difficult to raise Loyalist militia than it would have been in 1775 or 76. North Carolina patriots not only had strong militia support, they also raised several regiments of continentals. These continental regiments in the south not only fought southern battles, but also went further north to fight battles there. This week's book takes a closer look at those men. The North Carolina Continentals by Hugh Rankin begins in North Carolina, devoting Chapter 2 to the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. After that and a few other fights, he follows the North Carolina Continentals northward as they participate in many of the battles around Philadelphia and Winter and Valley Forge. As the British finally make a serious attempt to retake the South later in the war, Rankin follows those North Carolina regiments as they returned south to fight in some of the major battles there. So this book covers much of the war, but does so from the perspective of the soldiers from North Carolina. I found it to be an unusual angle from which to view the war. The sources listed at the end of the book show that the author used a great many primary sources to produce a work that does not recycle the work of others. Rankin first published this book in 1971, although a new edition came out in 2005. It's rather lengthy, with nearly 400 pages of text, but since it covers several years of the war, there's a lot to cover. Rankin was a professor at Tulane University, and he wrote at least a half a dozen books on North Carolina history, most of which involved the Revolution. These are all older books since Professor Rankin passed away in 1989. As I said, the book focuses on the entire war period for North Carolina and also focuses primarily on military history. I found it engaging and worthwhile. If you want to learn more about that perspective, you want to consider getting this book. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you'll join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans?